The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Well, if I were to ask you, what do you think are the three greatest needs in the church today? Think about that for a minute. What do you think are the three greatest needs in the church today? Well, somebody once asked the late R.C. Sproul that very question. And you know what he said the answer was? He said the three greatest needs of the church today are to know God, to know God, and to know God. And I think he was right. It's kind of like if you asked a real estate agent, what's the most important thing about buying a house? And they would tell you, location, location, and location. There are a lot of other things that are important, but those, that is paramount. And so all these, there's a lot of other needs in the church. But if we do not know God, then what are we really doing? Do you know Him personally? Are you out of gas and talking to him after a paragraph? Do you know his ways, his works, his names, his attributes? Has he met you at your darkest hour? We need to know God so that we can be still and know that he is God. And we can say with confidence that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble even though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. And the reason I picked Isaiah 40 is because if I, I just love Isaiah 40. If I only had two chapters that I could preach every Sunday, what would the other chapter be, Bruce, that I've always loved to preach? I've preached it more than any other sermon here. What was it, Jonah? <laughs> it's Luke 15. Luke 15 and the prodigal son elder. And that, that's my other... Sorry to put you on the spot there, Bruce. But Bruce always knows. Like, he remembers the sermons, but it's okay. <laughs> the other sermon that I probably preach the most here is Isaiah 40. Because I just love these two chapters of Scripture. Because when yesterday we went on a big hike, the, the guys. At least it was a big hike for me. 3.3 miles, and we get to this beautiful overlook, and, and it was beautiful, but it was really windy and really cold, so it was beautiful. I just want to turn around and kind of look at it. <clears throat> but when you get to these big overlooks, and you look out, God gets big, and we get small. And you realize, he's got the whole world in his hands. A little different than what's being taught in the school system today. I saw a tweet that Rebecca McLaughlin put out that her daughter said they're being taught in the public school that we have the world in our hands. And that's being taught. No, you don't. That's going to lead to a lot of anxiety, a lot of mental issues. You trying to hold the world in your hands. Are you crazy? That's what this chapter is about. It's putting things right side up for us because we need... This chapter, it's one of these great overlooked chapters that gives you the mountain view of God. And this last passage here, verse 25 to 31, let's give attention to that, and I'm going to kind of go through the chapter. But the last reading is from Isaiah 40, picking up verse 25. 
To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he's strong in power, not one is missing. There's not an AWOL star. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? So verse 27, the whole chapter is revolving around that. Is that, that that's the problem? Is that the people have one? If it was a responsive reading, this is the only part that's a refrain from the from the people. <laughs> and it's my ways hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. I feel so powerless, and God's not doing anything. And doesn't God care? Where is God? And God says, "Have you not known? Have you not heard?" And when you hear that little refrain. What's the Shema? I mean, any Israelite would know that more than anything else. It'd be like saying to you, like, oh, oh say can you see by the dawn's early light. Like, you would kind of be able to start singing. They knew the Shema. It meant hear. Hear, O Israel. It's the first thing you learn as a good Jew. The Lord is one, and, and you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God is saying, Have you, do you not know? That's the other big Hebrew word, yada, yada and shema, big words. It would be very insulting to say, have you not heard? Of course we've heard. We know the shema. We've got it right here. We can say it all the time. They didn't know because it hadn't dropped. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait or hope for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And so though the chapter is dealing with, there's a complaint You can see the title of the message is Complaints are Replaced by Comfort from the Creator. The chapter begins with comfort, comfort. It's a plural imperative. Comfort the church, comfort, comfort. And it ends with those who wait and hope are going to renew their strength. They're going to mount up with wings like eagles. And what's so impressive about that is when you look at the rest of the chapter, how are we described in, the, in chapter 40 of Isaiah? I mean, there's so many different ways you could preach Isaiah 40, but if you just look at how we're described, well, we're called dust. Uh, that's not a very nice thing to say. We're called grass that withers and flowers that fade, and we're basically a dandelion that you blow on it and it's gone. That's how we're described. We're described as grasshoppers. Um, all these things are meant to like, we are really, really small compared to this great God who's created everything, and we are his creation, and yet he says that we're going to be like eagles that soar. How can that be? Well, let's, let's give attention to this chapter of Isaiah 40. First of all, as I mentioned, you know, the people are going to be going into captivity into Babylon, and if you read Psalm 137, 
it's not a pleasant experience. I mean, if you read the book of Habakkuk and the dread of here, the, this army is coming. <clears throat> they are violent. They are vicious. They are going to take everything. They are going to destroy us. They're going to take us into captivity. And in Psalm 137, it says, you know, we, we put our instruments down and we wept. And they're telling us to, come on now, sing your songs from, from Zion now that you're in this foreign land. And like, how can we sing? They're terribly disappointed. They are discouraged. They are embittered. And yet God is telling them, good news, comfort, comfort. And this idea that we get easily tripped up on where it says that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It doesn't mean a double payment. It'd be easy to get tripped up, up there and say, how can God be just and have a double payment? Well, the idea for double, <clears throat> this is uh, Motier's commentary here. He says, it means to fold over or to fold in half in Hebrew. And so the thought here is not of excessive punishment running beyond what the case required, but of dealing with sin that includes realities beyond our comprehension. <clears throat> when something is folded over, each half corresponds exactly with the other half, and this would yield the thought of exact correspondence between sin and payment. And it's going to be the, the rest of the unfolding of the rest of Isaiah that's going to progressively explain to us what the payment's going to look like and who is actually going to pay the price. And when you get to Isaiah 53, you realize that it's the servant and the servant is Jesus. And so the comfort is, is that your sins have been paid for and that God hasn't abandoned his people or his covenant. He's still referring to them as my people and himself as your God. And so no matter what your plight is this morning, and you may be thinking that God has disregarded you and he's not remembering you in the midst of whatever your difficulty is. And for Israel, it was great. It was acute. God is your God and he will be with you and he will comfort you. But then we have this, we have three voices in Isaiah, okay, in this chapter. So you can see them if you look carefully. You look at verse three, it says a voice cries. When you get to verse 6, it says, a voice says, cry. And then all of Jerusalem is told to, told to lift up their voice. And we're to lift up our voice, and what are we to say? Behold your God. That's be the, the summary of the book of Isaiah in three words. Behold your God. Let's try that, church. What are we to say to one another? Behold your God. There are 88 beholds in the book of Isaiah. 88 of them. So every time you get to a behold, stop. What are the other two beholds in this chapter? There's three in this chapter. Behold your God. And how's the next verse begin? Oh, there's another one. Behold. That means stop and consider. The Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. How does the book of Revelation end? Jesus says, I'm coming, and I'm coming what? To reward and recompense. Revelation 22, 13. So ultimately, this isn't fulfilled until Jesus returns, but it's clearly this is Jesus, Revelation 22, 13, and he will tend his flock like a shepherd. So here he comes with this might, and the idea of a shepherd in Scripture 
is that what do shepherds do? They protect you. They protect you from enemies. And the way they're able to protect you is they're strong and they're courageous and shepherds are able to, you know, kill bears and and lions and things that can snatch away the sheep. And he's going to gather these lambs. He's going to protect them. And so, you know, his sheep know his voice and they follow him, as Ellen was quoting earlier. And he doesn't lose any of them. And none get plucked out of his hand. This is all about Jesus because Jesus is coming, is what Isaiah 40 is declaring. And so verse 3, go back to the first voice, and the first voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, where is that fulfilled in the New Testament? Well, how does the Gospel of Mark begin? The Gospel of Mark begins with the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the summary of the book. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared. John appeared. John appeared. John the Baptist. He's the voice. And who is John the Baptist preparing the way for, kids? Who is John the Baptist preparing the way for? Sunday school answer? Well, who is Jesus in Isaiah 40? This is what I always share when the Jehovah Witnesses come knocking on my door. As I take them right here to Isaiah 40. I say, I want you to be a Jehovah Witness. Because John the Baptist came to prepare the way of Yahweh. Prepare the way of Jehovah. He came to prepare the way of Jehovah. To make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So John the Baptist comes to prepare the way for God. God's coming. Look at verse 5. The glory of who's coming? Look at verse 5. The glory of Yahweh shall be revealed. The glory of Yahweh is going to be revealed. Well, how is it revealed? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. God's coming. Jesus is Jehovah. He is Yahweh. And everyone who calls upon the name of Jehovah shall be saved. Joel 2, Romans 10, 13. It's Jesus. Same word. Same person. It's Jesus. And so... What we see is this first voice is John the Baptist, ultimately. And then, the second voice is to cry out, what shall I cry? And the cry is that all flesh is grass, in all its beauty, like the flower of a field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. And then I've been using this verse some at the end of uh, a scripture reading before the sermon, is the grass withers, The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And here is Isaiah prophesying this well over a hundred years before it happens. And I find it so ironic that all of these people write, and they write on eloquently about how Isaiah has to be done by three different people because there's no way he could have predicted this in advance and write about the Babylonian captivity because he died well over a hundred years before it happened. And that's the point of the second voice. 
is you, you wither, you fade, you're nothing, but the word of our God stands forever. And he can call out Cyrus like he does in Isaiah and name him by name that he's raising him up and he's going to send his people back. And the ransomed are going to return with everlasting joy upon their heads and there's going to be something beautiful coming out of Israel, out of Jerusalem. You see, God's not done. And, I, and God is all-powerful and all-knowing and he knows the future and so he can speak through a prophet and foretell the future. And the word of our God will stand forever. It's going to happen. And what is Babylon? And what is, I see, and what is Assyria? They were these great superpowers, Assyria, especially to Israel. They're scared of them. They're so scared of them, they want to call on Egypt to come and help them. They want to call on, you know, they, Assyria's coming. We need help. We need help. And, and what is God saying? Look, he's saying, have you ever gotten on down on all fours and taken a little dandelion and just going and blowing on her? And it, all that stuff goes, he says, that's what I do to Babylon. That's what I do to Assyria. I just blow on them and they're gone. They're nothing. They're less than nothing, he says. So then the third voice is calling the church, calling the people of God to behold their God. And as I mentioned, there are 88 beholds. But how do we behold our God this morning? Well, first of all, we need to see his glory over his creation. And that's verses 12 to 24. And let's just consider the things that he says. Because there's 22 rhetorical questions that are fired out in rapid fire. And the first one is, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? I mean, how much water can you get in the hollow of your hand? I mean, you got a really, anybody got a big hand? They can get a lot in the hollow, maybe like two ounces in there. I've got a really big hand. I could get three ounces, you know? Well, 90%, 97% of the waters on our planet are salt water. And over two-thirds of the earth is water. Only 3% is fresh water. How big is this hollow of his hand? I mean, there's a trench so deep in the Pacific Ocean that you could take the highest mountain, <clears throat> take Mount Everest, turn it upside down as a measuring stick, and stick it in the trench in the Pacific, Pacific Ocean, somewhere near Guam, and you measure, that, you measure it down, and you'd still have 7,000 more feet that you need to go down if this Everest is going to touch the bottom of this trench that's some 36,000 feet deep. And he says, it's just in the hollow of my hand. You see, there are 187 quintillion gallons in the Pacific Ocean alone. And if you want to know what that is, children, if you want to just have some fun this morning, write 187, okay, and then 21 zeros. That's just to get the gallons in the Pacific. And he says he, he measures it in the hollow of his hand. It's nothing to him. It's, you know, we think, man, that's a lot of water that bathtub holds. Oh, this is a little bit bigger than any bathtub you've seen. And then he says he marks off the heavens with a hand, with a hand breadth, with a span. Now quarterbacks, one of the things they test you at the combine is they measure your hand size. So if you have nine and a half is minimum, nine and a half inches, if your hand breadth is less than nine and a half inches, then realistically you're not going to be an NFL quarterback except for Michael Vick who had small hands. But 
And I love just watching Drew Brees on the Sunday night football when you see him at halftime, and he goes like this with his hands. And he's only six foot tall, but when Drew Brees goes like this, it's like he's got huge hands. I just want to, if I could shake a guy's hand, I want to shake Drew Brees' hand. I mean, those, those things are over, they're ten, over 10 inches. He's 10.3 at six foot tall. He's just enormous hands. And just for you, Will, Dak Prescott has the largest hands in football, just shy of 11 inches, biggest quarterback hands in football. Doesn't mean he's a great quarterback, though. Just for, you know. <laughs> now, why do I tell you all that? Well, God says he measures the heavens with his hand. Now, he doesn't have hands. And let's think about this. The speed of light travels 186,000 miles a second. Light just traveled around the earth seven times in one second. Like that. And this light is traveling at 670 million miles an hour. 670 million miles. A light year is traveling at 670 miles an hour for a year. Okay? That's 5.88 trillion miles. Almost like our national debt, but it's getting worse. But it's a long, long way, okay? So if you were to hop on the space shuttle Discovery, which can travel five miles a second, it would take us over 37,000 years to go a light year. Thir over 37,000. And the nearest star to us is four and a half light years away. So that's just the nearest star. And our galaxy which is the Milky Way galaxy, of which they think there are billions of galaxies. We're just a small little galaxy called the Milky Way. Well, to get from one end to the other, traveling around the Earth, speed of light, one second, right? Traveling at your, your 670 million miles an hour would take us two million light years to get from one end of our little galaxy to the other. Two million light years at 670 million miles an hour. And he says, it's this. Our God is a little bigger than us. We can't get our arms around the creator. We can't even get our arms around the creation. How much less can we get our arms around the creator? And he says that all of the dust of the earth, you, it's just nothing to him. You can put it in a bucket. He can measure it. The dust of the earth would be like us, you know, playing in this little oversized little, or little, you know, we're this oversized person in this little tiny sandbox. And we scoop out a little bit of sand. And he's saying, that's what I do with all of the, all of the coastlines, all the sand on the seashore, all the dust. And he says, he's weighed the mountains. Who can weigh the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? How many mountains are there in the world? Any idea? You have to be a thousand feet to be a mountain. Okay? So technically, I mean, Sugarloaf is the only mountain that we can really see around here. And that's technically, it's, it's 1,283 feet elevation, but it only goes up 860 feet. So I don't know really with a thousand, if it qualifies to be a thousand in elevation or, or a thousand total. It's, it's, it's on the line. It can be one or the other, okay? But there are a million mountains, over a million mountains in the world. Okay, over a million. 
But there's over 73,000 mountains in the United States alone. And God says he can just measure them on a scale. He can just put them on a scale and measure them. He knows. And then he says, who's measured the spirit of the Lord? You want to try and measure me? Who's measured the spirit? Try to, try to use those, those things that you're using. You know, your scale and the ways that you do your, your computations here. And you want to measure the spirit of the Lord? And what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? You see, what he's trying to remind us is that God's own knowledge depends on God alone. He is self-attesting, self-referential, self-sufficient. His, his knowledge is the ultimate justified true belief. He's the ultimate justification of knowledge. He's the standard for creaturely knowledge and his own. He's the ultimate truth, the truth of what is and what is he has decreed to be. I'm quoting John Frame from his systematic theology. God's knowledge depends only on, on himself. He knows all things. He knows his own plan for the universe. And since both these objects of thought are eternal, God's knowledge is eternal. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So let me bring it down on my level rather than the John Frame level. God doesn't learn. He never learns something new. He already knows everything. He's foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. We don't, he doesn't need any counselors. He doesn't need a study commission. He doesn't need a consultant, a poll, a board to help him out or to figure out which way he should go or do something. He doesn't need a lifeline. He doesn't need a phone call. And nobody's had to taught, teach him like what is fair, what is equitable, what is just. Nobody has schooled God. Nobody has discipled God. Nobody's brought God up to speed. Nobody's reminded God of something that he's forgotten. Nobody's had to fill him in on something. Nobody's been his mentor. He's never made a mistake. He has never needed a second chance. He's never had to have a redo so he can get it right. He answers every prayer perfectly and he sizes up our needs perfectly. He knows exhaustively what sinners do. He evaluates our actions rightly, and he's the very standard of truth. They cannot be wrong. He's the teacher, and we are always the pupil. And so he doesn't need us to teach him. We have to resign afresh as the CEO of the universe, because we're not. And he says the nations are a drop from the bucket, like a drop from the bucket, and are as accounted, there's an accounting term, as the dust on the scales. Now, have any of you before you got your physical with the doctor and they, the nurse takes you down and you, and you get on the scale. And I always make sure I take off everything possible except, you know, the, the bare, you know, but I take off, because I want to get light. You know, I take off my shoes, I take off my, my, my keys, my phone, my wallet, I just, you know. But I've never gotten down and blown the dust off the scales. Have you? Like, like it's going to make a difference. <sighs> you know, I, those, that dust can really mess things up here on this, on this way down. No. And he's saying the nations, the nations, they're just like a drop from the bucket, like a little condensation that comes out from the bucket and it just kind of drops down. That, that's the nations. And the dust on the scales. He's just saying that, they're, what are they? And you, Israel, are so worried. All you think about is Assyria. All you think about is, is this nation that you think is going to overtake you. And when they called upon the Lord under Hezekiah in Isaiah 37, 
38, and they trust in God. What does God do? When Sennacherib writes in his diary that he's got Jerusalem surrounded like a bird in a cage, and this is that's the end of, of, of Israel. This is it. And it says they awoke, and there were dead bodies everywhere. 185,000 are just struck down by the angel of the Lord. It's nothing to God. He took care of business. You see, all of the empires, all the dynasties, all their pomp, all their glory, it's just a tiny drop of perspiration that drips, slithers down from the bucket. The nations can't thwart anything of God's eternal purposes. The nations are so insignificant, so inconsequential. And it doesn't matter if you're Napoleon or Nero or Charlemagne or Constantine or any of the rulers. They're nothing compared to God. And then he says, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Let's just think about that for a second. Solomon went to Lebanon, sent people to Lebanon. They used the cedars to build God's temple in Jerusalem, and he had shifts of 10,000 men at a time involved in cutting trees and hauling them to the sea where they were floated on a raft down to Israel's coast. And he's saying, you could put all the thousands and thousands of acres, over 90 geographical miles of thick cedar forest trees, and you were to light it all on fire and have the biggest forest fire you've ever seen, and all the animals in all of those forests, throw them in there and offer that up as a sacrifice. And God's saying, it's unworthy of me. I'm so much greater than all of that to have you think that that would be enough to offer me as an offering. And then he says it again, all the nations are nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And so here Israel's fearing Assyria, and then Babylon. And he says, who will you liken me to? What likeness compare with him? We can't even measure the creation. How much less can we measure the creator? God is saying, you can't grasp the oceans, the mountains, the sand, the islands, the stars, and these are just the work of my fingers, Simple work. E.J. Young says, how can the weak measure the strong and the finite measure the infinite and the changeable measure the unchangeable and the creation measure the creator? Who do we think we are? And then he says, you would use an idol to compare me to and make an idol? The craftsman would set it and make up this this thing that, that a human being creates and this idol won't even move. It can't hear, it can't see, it can't speak How stupid for finite creatures to create finite gods that can't do anything and then to compare them to me. He's saying any comparison and every comparison falls short. You see, you can't compare God to anything. You know, it's like with anything else in life, we always compare it to something. You know, oh, what's turkey like? Well, turkey's like chicken, but but darker, you know. You know, anything, you, you compare it to something. Tell me about this. Well, you know, I mean, somebody was asking me, you know, have you read Chesterton? This was, and I just said, yeah, he's, he's kind of like Lewis. You know, he's witty and pithy and he's a cultural apologist. And, you know, we compare people. What do you compare God to? Nothing. He's saying, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circles of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them like a tent to dwell in. 
He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. I mean, did anybody think it was impressive that you that took a shower this morning, opened the curtain, and, and then you shut the curtain? Then you open it again, and you shut it again. And maybe some of you were really good, and you made your bed this morning. Anybody pull those sheets up, pull it up, make it look snug? I mean, we're impressive, right? God's saying, I did that with the universe. He just stretched it out like a curtain, just like you would open the blinds this morning. He created the universe, just as you made your bed or made your tent and fluffed it up. He said, that's what I did with making the earth, making the planet, making the planets, making the galaxies, the universe, all of it. He just did it. And then he describes us. And he says that we're just like grasshoppers. And it's funny because it reminds the people of God, when did they refer to themselves as grasshoppers? Who did they think they were grasshoppers before? The big powerful nation of the Canaanites. We can't go take that land because we're like grasshoppers before them. They're so powerful and they're so mighty. And God is saying, you're afraid, what? You're like grasshoppers before me, but to these other nations, you shouldn't be thinking that way. He brings princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble, whether they're Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Churchill, FDR, they're just dandelions. From Nebuchadnezzar's to Sennacherib's, they're just dandelions. And he's saying, who will you compare me to that I should be like him? And the answer is, there isn't anybody. So again, he says, lift up your eyes and see who created this, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. In the last 30 years or so, astronomers have been trying to discover and they're hunting for planets. And they're hunting for planets that revolve around stars because they're looking for a different solar system and ultimately they want to find another planet Earth that will revolve around another sun because of the potential of trying to find life on another planet. Good luck with that project, right? But they've been finding some planets. And so in our Milky Way alone, over the past you know, couple decades, Astronomers have found as many as 135 planets revolving around various stars, but all of them are giant gas planets similar to Jupiter and Saturn. But then more recently, um, in the University of Texas astronomers, they, they found um, this star named 55 Cancri, and it's about the size of our sun, and it's located only 41 light years away. <laughs> The star has three known gas giant planets looping around it and some orbit from 14 days to 4,500 days. But then they have found a planet that uh, is closer to our system and uh, they're calling this, the star is called, I can't even pronounce it, G-L-I-E-S-E. Gliese 436. It's about 33 light years from Earth, and it's in the direction of the constellation of Leo, and it's a Neptune-sized planet. Hovers about 3 million miles from the star, and it whips around its star, this, this planet, in, in less than three days. And so here they've found 135 planets. Aren't, aren't we special? 
Aren't we special? Because this is what blew my mind in reading the article. It says these planet hunters are revamping their strategy. This is the last one of the last quotes in the article. We estimate there's something like 20 billion planetary systems existing in our Milky Way galaxy alone. And we found 135 of them. Aren't we special? And just in our own little galaxies, there's 20 billion planetary systems they're estimating. Are you kidding me? And he says he calls them all out, names them all by name, and not one is missing. And we think he's forgotten about us. And not even a sparrow can fall to the ground apart from the will of the Father. And he knows every one of your hairs. And he's saying, you're not disregarded. So verse 27, that's us. It's repent. We say, why do you say? O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. Is anything hidden from God? Is he not just? Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And he says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no mighty increases strength. Even youths will faint and be weary. Young men fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like wings like eagles. They shall run and be we- not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. So let me just remind you. God never forgets. God never slumbers. He never sleeps. He never takes a nap. He never has a long wink. He never needs to be aroused. He never needs to be rebooted. Never has to be unplugged. You never have to hit control, alt, delete. He's never frustrated. You never have to un... You know, he's, he's always, always awake. He's the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, and he hasn't forgotten us. And we have to be reminded continually that our God is great. Our problem is our thoughts about God are too small. We're like Sarah. We're like Sarah in the tent. You know, this time next year, you're going to have a child. <laughs> That's a funny one. You laughed. No, I didn't laugh. No, no, you, you laughed. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Mary, when she hears she's going to conceive from the Holy Spirit, she says nothing is impossible with God. Or the angel said that to her. Moses says in Numbers, the people who I'm among are 600,000 men on foot, and you've said I'll give them meat? <laughs> that they may eat for a whole month? Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered for them to provide enough for them? Moses had a small God. And the Lord said to Moses, Has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see whether what I say will happen to you or not. And the quail come in the next day, and they keep coming. Our God is able to make the sun stand still. Our God is able to shut the mouths of lions. Our God is able to keep Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the smell of smoke in there in a raging fire. You see, our desires always exceed our abilities constantly. We are surrounded by limitations. God doesn't have that problem. His counsel shall stand. He will do all his pleasure. All that he desires to do, he will do. His ability and desires, there's never like a discord there. Stephen Charnock, great Puritan, 
This book on the attributes says his power is such that he can do whatever he pleases without difficulty or resistance. He cannot be checked, frustrated, or restrained. His, how worthless his eternal counsels would be if his power couldn't execute them. His mercy would be a feeble pity if he were destitute of power to relieve his justice, a slighted scarecrow without power to punish, and his promises an empty sound without the strength to accomplish them. And for our God, creation was one thing. But he's doing something more than creation here. He's doing redemption. You see, no antagonists were involved in creation. But to redeem, he had to overthrow and overcome the devil. He had to overcome death. He had to to atone for sin. And the power involved in redemption, his strong arm has to begin and has to complete so that none are able to pluck out of his hands. And in his wisdom, he chose that his own son would become that weak, that his arms would be nailed to a cross. And he says that all that are given to him, none will perish. You see, you were no match for Satan, but Satan was no match for God. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. We're under new management. And this whole earth now is under new management as his kingdom is breaking in. Now, A.W. Pink in his little book on the attributes in God and said, if God were stinted in might and had a limit to his strength, he might, we might well despair. But seeing that he's clothed with omnipotence, no prayer is too hard for him to answer, no need too great for him to supply, no passion too strong for him to subdue, no temptation too powerful for him, for him to deliver from, no misery too deep for him to relieve. Do you believe that? Are you like me? I believe. Help my unbelief. Better to have a small faith in a great God than great faith in a small God. Your faith is only as good as the object in which it's cast. Behold your God, church. It's what you and I desperately need. And I will just say in closing that in two weeks, we're not going to have a... Thanksgiving service on a Sunday night or a Wednesday night. We're actually going to do it on a Sunday morning in two weeks. After Thanksgiving, we're going to set up microphones on each side of the sanctuary. Instead of us doing all the readings and scripture prepared in advance, we're asking you to come with a one-minute testimony or a couple of scripture verses that have ministered to you in this past year. And we want to have, let's the redeemed of the Lord say so. This chapter is meant to make us thankful and I want us as a church to take time to respond. We'll still have a sermon, we'll, but the testimony and the scripture readings are going to come from you. So that's your homework, is to be thankful, um, but then to reflect more upon what you would like to share with the church. Let's behold our God together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's none like you. This whole chapter is about you. You are the creator, you're the sustainer. We thank you for your providential care over all your creation, all your creatures, all their actions, all our thoughts. And Lord God, forgive us, for we have these small thoughts, small aspirations, small worship. And we ask that you would enlarge our hearts Enlarge our minds to grasp better. We praise you, Lord, for your wisdom. Forgive us for trying to correct you. 
Help us to accept what we cannot understand. Help us not to put you in the dock, but to love you and to cherish and to know that you are making all things right. And we trust that all shall be well with our souls. We know that all who have gone before us, gone before us are infinitely happy in your presence now. We look forward to that day. I do pray that you would renew our strength. May we mount up like wings like eagles. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.